0: Is populism a threat to liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Adam Bartha. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Adam Bartha. Adam is the director of the Epicentre Network, the European Policy Information Centre, an independent initiative of nine leading think tanks from across the European Union. He was previously European Outreach Manager at Epicentre and a Koch Summer Fellow in the Publications Department of the Independent Institute in California. He also has experience in domestic party politics in Germany and Hungary. He has an honors bachelor's in politics and international relations from the University of Sheffield and a master's in political theory from the London School of Economics. Fun fact, he is fluent in English, German and Hungarian, but we're going to stick to English for this episode. He recently wrote a very informative article entitled Political Realignment, Threats and Opportunities for European Liberals, which will inform a lot of our discussion today. Adam, welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Great to be here.
0: So Adam, as we were just chatting before we started recording, in each episode we start with a question and go wherever the answers lead us. So let's kick it off. I'll throw it right to you. Is populism a threat to liberalism?
1: I definitely believe that's the case. I think, especially for classical liberals and libertarians, in the last couple of decades, we really managed to make a difference throughout the globe, even though we're not really the majority of any society, right? I don't think any society in the Western world consists of more than 50% of libertarians or classical liberals, so people who believe both in individual and economic freedoms. Yet, I think the story has been incredibly positive. Uh, We made tremendous differences when it comes to economic policymaking. We live in a much more globalized, a much more prosperous world. Um, Poverty rates have been drastically declining throughout the globe. And that's mostly thanks to our globalized economy. More trade, more immigration, and more prosperous societies were really the result of of the impact of classical liberals throughout the globe. And we managed to achieve that without actually um, being the political majority. But we found the right political allies in each of the countries where we managed to make a difference. Um, And I think these political allies tended to be rather on the conservative side Mm -hmm. and the vast majority of the countries, especially in the Europe in the European Union and in the United States. Although the European Union um, usually has um, in its member states uh, um, proportional representation, so elections where really um, no single party can form a majority government. Um, liberal parties usually tended to pull between 5 and 15% in most of the European countries. But they managed to get into most of the coalition governments throughout the last decades. Um, and I think they made a really, really positive difference to the policymaking of these countries. Um, and in countries where you have uh, first past the post system, so the United Kingdom and the United States, a lot of the classical liberals aligned themselves with conservatives and they managed to reform some of these conservative parties, so the Tory party in the United Kingdom or the Republican party in the US um, into a more free market, more kind of individualistic um, political parties than they would have been otherwise. My worry is that this kind of political alliance is going to cease to exist in the future, um, and that's mainly because a lot of these conservative parties are moving away from individual liberties. They're moving away from free markets, and they start to emphasize the social conservatism within their own movements, which makes it incredibly difficult for classical liberals and libertarians to
0: sustain long-term alliances with them. I think that's a great overview. That's a great way to jump right in. So you touched on a lot of points in that statement. So let's drill into certain aspects so back to populism for a second yeah, you talked about this at the beginning of, of what you were saying there. Uh, I'm going to quote you from your article. The combined support for left and right wing populist parties now equals the support for social democratic parties and is twice the size of support for liberal parties. Now, we should, of course, note that a lot of your work and research does focus around Europe. So for our listeners that maybe in mostly in Canada and the United States, for instance, sometimes this sort of statement might be a little distant to them. They don't really understand this. In Canada, I don't think for the most part, many people would recognize what a populist party with power would actually look like or gaining power. And In the United States, there's some discussions about Trumpism and populism, which we'll get to later. Right. But, uh, but, but this might be a little foreign to people. So maybe give us a little bit of a tour of the left and right populist political scene in Europe and what, what you meant by that. So we have a
1: very interesting piece of research called the Authoritarian Populism Index. And this index measures every single European parliamentary election since the 1980s. Which means we have data about all liberal democracies ever since, and the tendencies that their citizens are uh, voting for. Um, and this shows a fairly worrying sign, namely that the centrist political parties, and I think libertarians disagree with many policies of centrist liberty or centrist political parties. So I don't think that we necessarily need to support them under every. A scenario, But these centrist political parties are shrinking um, across the European Union, um, and they are shrinking because the radicals, both on the left and the right, are becoming stronger. I don't think I need to explain why communists and uh, really socialist uh, left wing radicals are dangerous. Um, From a free market libertarian perspective, I think that has been fairly obvious. I Mm -hmm. think since the Cold Cold World War, uh, libertarians really highlighted the issues of oppressive um, communist governments across the globe, and rightly so. Um, But when it comes to the right-wing authoritarian populists, um, I think initially libertarians had some sympathy towards them because they were criticizing the status quo, they're criticizing many of the policies uh, of centrist governments that led to store economic growth, that were kind of wishy-washy and corporatist. Um, so really the kind of frustration that has been building up across societies in Europe uh, was captured very well by some of these authoritarian populist movements. And whilst they were in a position um, you know, some of the critiques that they have formulated were occasionally valid. Um, the problem is, once these populist parties got into government, the policies that they have implemented are even worse uh, when it comes to uh, the foundations of liberalism and individual freedoms overall. Um, so. I would highlight two of the main examples in the European Union, the case of Poland and the case of Hungary. Hungary elected a nationalist populist government in 2010, um, so almost 10 years ago. In practice, that meant um, at the very beginning that people were incredibly optimistic that there is finally a political party with a great majority, even constitutional majority, really having the opportunity to to create deep reforms within society and the economy. But the big problem with uncontrolled power is obviously that it corrupts and it corrupts incredibly quickly. Um, So in order to have long-term effects on the society, a lot of the checks and balances within the Hungarian constitutional system were abolished. Um, the three parts of governments were kind of united under one part, uh, with the legislative and executive being almost the same thing, and the judiciary having their independence massively curtailed. And the fourth part of, um, you know, the unofficial fourth part of government uh, independent. And press uh, and media plurality is non-existent in the country today. Um, and when it comes to libertarians and free marketeers, uh, we often focus too much on the economic angle of uh, policymaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of these governments that disrespect the rule of law and disrespect the separation of power, they have introduced some tax reforms that might seem incredibly Uh, popular for many of the libertarians. You know, decreasing income tax rates, decreasing corporate tax rates, uh, making it easier uh, for multinational uh, companies to invest in the country. So there has been some good, proper free market reforms on the economic angle, which are undeniable. But the problem is, if you erode the rule of law, and if you erode the foundations of liberal democracies, uh, then these supposedly free market reforms are not going to be long-lasting. Right? right? So You might have multinational companies in these countries for whom the investment opportunities are fantastic, but if you're a local entrepreneur and if you don't have the political connections to establish your own business or if you don't have the political connections to grow your own business and keep your own business, because some of the local oligarchs might find your business quite rewarding themselves, they rather give you an offer that you can't necessarily refuse, then I think we are in a territory that's incredibly dangerous for free marketeers, and that's incredibly dangerous for libertarians um, as a whole. And this has been an ongoing problem Um, in many of the Eastern European countries, but based on our research, so the authoritarian populism indexes research, um, it has been a growing concern in many of the Western countries as well. The likes of Italy, the likes of Sweden have seen a massive increase in popularity for authoritarian populists on the right and on the left in recent years. Um, and I think we do need to combat that.
0: So so you would definitely encourage, as you said, classical liberals and free marketeers, if they see something they like on the economic front, then they certainly have to look a little deeper and see what is going on on, on the social front as well. I think that's an excellent point. Exactly. So we're going to talk a little bit more about political realignment now. I know you touched on it at the beginning, but why don't you quickly redefine what you mean by political realignment? And then I'm going to probably ask you some follow-up questions.
1: So I think for the last couple of decades, basically since the 1950s, the main political identifying factor was really how you thought about the role of government when it came to redistribution. Um, we had the traditional distinction between right-wing and left-wing political parties. Mm-hmm. You were more right-wing if you supported a limited role of the state when it, to, when it comes to economic redistribution, and you were more left-wing if you supported more redistribution through the states. Um, And this has been the definition for the last 50 years in most uh, traditional Western democracies. I think this is changing at the moment. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Steve Davis from the Institute of Economic Affairs, he highlighted this point already 10 years ago when I think there were only very few signs for that to happen. He coined the term political realignment, which basically meant that the primary identifying factor Um, of politics was changing. It was no longer how you thought about economics. And it was rather defined by how you felt about globalism versus nativism, globalism versus nationalism. So it was more a question of identity rather than a question of economic redistribution. And I think we're seeing that in most um, authoritarian populists. Uh, political parties across Europe, that they are really wishy-washy on economic issues. Some are more traditionally right-wing, some are more traditionally left-wing, but they're really united on their ideas when it comes to hostility against a globalised world, when it comes to hostility, um, you know, a dislike of the European Union, a dislike of multinational companies and uh, organizations that are above kind of national sovereignty, such as the United Nations or the like. And I think that's a very interesting tendency because you can see it, obviously, that Right and left wing populists are united in that. Right. So it's almost like a full, full circle touching at the at the extreme ends that uh, left wing populists and right wing populists end up saying the same thing at the end of the day.
0: They might not agree on certain cultural values, let's say, but they certainly agree on a on a big state that's going to help them do what they they feel they need to do to fulfill their vision of what the society should look like. Usually. Yes. And uh, and of course, in your article, you did note that there's a lot of traditional alliances breaking up because of political realignment. I mean, and of course, one of them is the traditional like fused or fusionism alliance in the United States, which typically was between uh, classical liberals and market libertarians and conservatives. So that this is in the United States, the, the same fate is also being felt.
1: Yeah, I think this is happening across liberal democracies throughout the globe. So it's not necessarily just a European issue. If you look at the Republican Party today and the Republican Party 10 years ago, you see incredible differences. I mean, the Republican Party used to be the bastion of free trade and uh, global power um, throughout throughout the globe, right? And today, it's very much an inward looking, occasionally uh, doing some free market reforms when it comes to taxation. but more often just endorsing big governments uh, when it comes to migration control, when it comes to trading systems, and when it comes to uh, policies that are expanding the role of the government uh, through increased spending. Um, so I think this is obvious um, that this is this has been going on in the United States as well. But it will be interesting to see how the Democratic Party is going to develop in response. Uh, The Republican Party definitely massively changed in the last five years, uh, but I don't think we have seen that with the Democrats yet. It might be that they go um, towards a more radical side. uh, That would, I think in practice, mean the election of Bernie Sanders as their presidential candidate, or that they really become almost like a classical liberal party supporting more free trade and supporting a more global engagement of the United States um, and start Position to what Trump and uh, the GOP are supporting right
0: now, and some change is bound to happen, of course, during this realignment. I, I find that a lot of people, of course, accept that the Republican Party has changed a lot as you've described, but sometimes people still talk about the Democrat Party as if it's the same old thing it's been for the past thirty years. But but that's that's definitely not going to be the case, as you're saying. This is it's definitely bound to change. There's got to be some something that gives.
1: Yeah, um, and in some countries, it's a slower process than in others. Right. right. So a political realignment might take five. To 10 years in some countries, uh, but it has been fairly quick in many of the um, European countries. If you take a look at the previous Italian governments, Italian governments don't last too long, um, so they, they, they managed to survive only for roughly two years. Um, the radical right wing political party and the radical left wing political party formed a coalition government that was sustained for over two years. Uh, which has been a very interesting development because supposedly on the economic questions, they are in complete disagreement, But uh, the fact that they were both hostile to many of the globalizing tendencies uh, that were going on within the EU uh, made them unite and made them prioritize that policy aspect a lot more than their economic disagreements. Um, And that happen in a fairly short period of time. Um, So I can easily imagine that after the presidential elections in the United States, after November, uh, we're going to be looking at a very different democratic party than we have
0: right now we've talked a lot about parties in terms of the voters themselves in your article you touch on uh, the fact that people can have multiple political identities you touched on this before but i'd like to go on into it a little a little more deeper uh so, so first of all define what you mean by a political identity and then get into what you mean how uh, people can have an economic political identity and a social political identity i thought that was a really cool exploration in your article
1: sure um, so that that goes back to what i thought was the primary political identity in the past 50 years, which was really about economic redistribution. Um, At the end of the day, you voted on these lines. If you wanted to have more government involvement, then you voted for uh, left-wing political parties. And if you wanted to have less government involvement, you voted for right-wing conservative political parties. But that doesn't mean you didn't have other public policy priorities. Um, I think for a long time, these public policy priorities have been revolving around the role of the state when it comes to enforcing morality. Um, right. And then it was quite interesting that the table suddenly turned, right? It was the right-wing political parties that wanted an increased role for the state to enforce morality, whether it was the support for traditional families, um, you know, a stance against gay marriage, or enforcing stronger border controls and have less diversity, Uh, ethnic and other kinds of diversity in the society. It was really the conservative political parties that wanted an increased role of the state and the left-wing political parties that wanted to decrease it. Um, Of course, classical liberals were on, um, on the side of decreased government, both when it came to economic questions and the role of the state when it comes to morality. But because of the fact that economic redistribution was more important than the question about enforcing certain types of morality, um, it really made libertarians and classical liberals align with the conservative political forces rather than the left-wing political forces. uh, Because that was the question that most people worried about. Morality was important, fair enough. But at the end of the day, I, I really do care about tax rates. Nowadays, maybe in the United States, you do have debates about tax rates. But in the European Union, I really struggle to think of any country where the main political question is, what's going to be the income tax rate? What's going to be uh, the VAT or sales tax rate? What's going to be the corporate tax rate? People accepted that high redistribution that's prevalent in most of our societies. I think that's quite sad from a classical liberal perspective. But basically, it's not really a major public policy debate anymore. And that's what I mean, that the kind of primary political identity changed. And it's not really about the economic redistribution. It's much more about your identity and how you view uh, the role of individuals and the role of society when it comes to a uh, globalized uh, world that we are living in. I think people worry a lot about immigration. People worry a lot about uh, control of their national governments or rather the lack of it. And a lot of them um, who emphasize these issues more than others turn to uh, more populist, more authoritarian political parties that promise increased national control and increased national influence over global affairs, uh, over global affairs. um, So people kind of regain a certain type of lost control or perceived lost control. Um, And I think that's a very interesting development because just just, just because of the fact that certain politicians promise uh, to have more powerful national governments. It doesn't mean that the individual is going to be empowered, right? Right. Uh, so I think our role is really to kind of explain how individuals can foster and foster much better in a globalized, diverse society with more open borders, with more open trading regimes than many small includes tiny societies where the national governments might be powerful in themselves, uh, but the individual
0: is really powerless at the end of the day. I think that distinction is very important. As you said, the idea of like power to the government or power to the individual, of course, as classical liberals, you're right. It's it's important that we remind people that when a prime minister or president or whoever gets on stage and talks about we're going to have a powerful Britain or we're going to have a powerful France or or whatever country they're talking about. A lot of people and voters go, yeah, it's going to be great. They're going to implement the social policies I want, the economic policies I want. But as you said, it's important to look a little deeper and think, "Okay, but are we talking about individual powerment at the end of the day? What's the government policy actually going to be to get to this er level?
1: And I don't think that the populists have the answers, Um, and that's why a lot of these governments do manage to stay in power for a while just because of the sheer kind of new experience uh, that the citizens get after electing a completely new political party. The problem is that once a lot of these authoritarian populist parties get into government, um, they realize that they cannot provide the answers that would get them reelected, And once they realize it, um, they suddenly start enforcing um, reforms that reduce the likelihood of them losing power. Right. And how do, how do you go about this? There's a perfect playbook in every single liberal democracy that turned into an authoritarian regime that you start restricting media plurality, that you curb the independence of judiciary, and that you try to establish a powerful state that's really strongly um, connected to your own political party. You try to unite the economic and political elites by enabling oligarchs to earn a lot of money who know that their wealth is dependent on you staying in political power. And then suddenly you realize that the state and the economy, at least the top part of the economy, it is the same and this has been going on in some of the european union's member states partially financed by the european union and i think that's the incredibly problematic part and uh, that we don't have the mechanisms at the moment to realize that some of these governments are really doing long-lasting damage to the foundations of liberal democracies and their own societies Um, And because of the involvement of state redistribution, where a lot of the richer member states are financing poorer member states through the cohesion fund, we are really enabling these governments to build societies and uh, build countries that are not founded, on the principles of a free society.
0: And I think that's a massive problem in the long term. And I think the, the point you brought up is it's very important to mention. You said like a lot of these governments, a lot of these people don't have policies underneath what they're saying. And I think that's very important. Uh, a lot of people sometimes today say they feel like elections or debates don't have any substance to them or they're watching something and the, the people aren't really saying anything different. But, and that's a symptom of the, the source of a problem, which is what you're saying is do these people really have any policies, these populist parties and populist figures, right? A lot of them are, uh, seizing upon certain sentiments and bringing those to the forefront and people vote for those sentiments. Of course, if someone gets on a stage and says, we want a stronger economy and more jobs, I don't think you're going to find a lot of people that would disagree with that sentiment. But of course, as you said, there's got to be a policy at some point that goes along with that.
1: That's correct. And I think a mainstream political party in a country where populists have taken power does need to look at itself and ask how much we have contributed Uh, to the current situation, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the mainstream political parties started to do the same thing. They just campaigned with fancy slogans and uh, young politicians, um, but there wasn't much substance to the policy ideas that they had. So I think it became a massive problem in many EU countries that there were political parties that have been in power for decades and decades. Um, And really, they were governing in order to remain in power and not governing uh, for increased prosperity or not governing for any kind of political ideas and ideals in themselves. And people pick up on this. Of course, people pick up on it that, hey, social democrats in Sweden have been in power for 30 years. What have they actually done in the last five years that they promised that they're going to do, um, but then never implemented in the end. And if you have this experience with mainstream political parties, then you're going to look at other alternatives. And um, at the moment, it looks like it's the authoritarian populist parties that
0: fill the vacant. Well, there's one thing that some of these parties you're referring to uh, do do well to keep themselves in power.
1: Exactly. Um, but but that's a not a sustainable business model for exactly. political parties you're going to run out of steam after their
0: while. So uh, we're going to shift away from the, the political identity question, again to some other things in a sec, but is it fair to summarize this this chunk of our conversation by saying, as you said, people can have economic political identities, they can have social political identities, and and what you were saying before is ultimately that the economic political identity when it came to actually voting for things and, and the party that you were going to join or align with, that was people's primary concern, but now it's the social political identity, people's primary concern. Is that sort of a fair summary of what you were saying? Yeah, I would say so. I think it would be a good time to take a break before before we go on to our uh, next half so we're going to do it right now everyone you're listening to curious task i'm talking with adam bartha the curious task is a podcast from the institute for liberal studies feel free to send questions and feedback to curious task at liberal studies.ca. a special thanks to our supporters on patreon including andy crooks bryce tingle and christopher mcdonald remember to like us on facebook follow us on twitter at Curious Task ILS and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to the Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Adam Bartha today. Adam, before the break, we talked about a lot. Um, I just want to sort of catch the tail end of what we talked about and, and wrap it up with a certain point you said in your article. It may be a, a little inside baseball specifically because we're talking about uh, Europe, the European political landscape, but I think it's still useful for listeners in any country. So one of the things you said in your article is that ultimately, at the end of the day, as a result of many of the things we talked about, you said that some of the biggest losers in Europe – in all of this will probably be centrist social Democrats and Christian Democrats. Maybe we can tie up the first half of our conversation with that example as to why are these people going to be the biggest losers? And if people don't live in Europe that are listening or aren't familiar with these parties, I'm pretty sure you can make some connections with different parties or or similar political alignments in your country. So I, I still think this would be a useful example as to why you think these types of points of views and parties will be the biggest losers.
1: Sure. So just for a bit of background, social democratic parties have been incredibly prevalent in the European Union, Uh, throughout the last 50, 60 years. Uh, So where social social democracy has a very negative connotation in the United States, this has not been the case in European countries. And actually, to the credit of social democrats, although I do disagree with them on many policy questions, they implemented some far-reaching reforms when they were in power, when it came to reforming labor regulation in Germany, for example, they implemented many free market reforms on that front. Um, So they have been a fairly uh, constructive part of European democracy in the last 50, 60 years. Um, But social democratic parties and conservative Christian democratic parties are dying at the moment in most European countries. And I think that's really because um, they're still stuck in the same political differences that were prevalent 20 years ago and throughout the last half a century. The distinction between more social redistribution um, versus less economic and social redistribution. Um, And this is not the issue that most voters care about nowadays. They don't really mind how much of their hard earned money is gonna be taken away uh, when they have to worry about immigration. They don't really mind the corporate tax rates because they can't necessarily um, assess the impact of corporate tax rates, whether they are 15% or 20%, at the end of the day, they have benefited massively as consumers from reduced prices um, in the last couple of decades. That's thanks to mainly uh, an increase of uh, global trading um, with other non-European partners. Um, So really the economic redistribution is not necessarily the main concern of voters nowadays. Um, They're much, much more more worried about their identity. And the identity can take many different forms, obviously, for every single individual. Um, You hear a lot about identity politics in the United States nowadays, and mainly that's because of left-leaning political parties and left-leaning political actors. Um, but I think identity politics also plays an incredibly important role for right-wing political groups and right-wing political movements, um, just from a different perspective. Um, so left-wing parties usually emphasize the individual identity, um, whether someone classifies himself as heterosexual or homosexual, or whether, uh, you belong to a certain ethnic minority, it's incredibly important for left-wing political parties to respect these identities. I think that's overall a positive development. Um, For right-wing political parties, the role of nationhoods and the role of your family um, and um, your your role in society plays a much more important role. The conversation within the political arena is now revolving around various types of identities um, and various types of societies where these identities can be um, differently emphasized. So, For a right-wing supporter, the fact that I'm a Hungarian would be a lot more important than for a left-wing political supporter. they try to they try to involve these these conversations around identity in the mainstream political discussion. So a lot of the political parties started to emphasize the public policies that revolve around these identity questions. So left wing political parties discussing transgender issues um, and self identification on a scale that we have never seen before and right-wing political parties discussing the role of nationhood and the role of borders and national sovereignty uh, much more drastically than it used to be the case and I think that's an interesting development because it's true for both types of political movements but but from a different perspective
0: and as you said these are a lot of sentiments that a lot of these parties are latching onto too sometimes there's not even really a policy behind it sometimes people just say you know do you want your country to look like x y and z in the future and people say no and then they vote for that party so yeah
1: because i think a lot of these issues are overblown at the end right right even under a system of completely open borders, which we have actually tried in the European Union, right? Don't forget that members right. of the European Union can freely migrate from one country to the other without any type of restriction. So we do have open borders at the moment within the European Union. Yet Germany is very different to France, France is very different to Italy, and Italy is very different to the UK. So the role of nationhood did not cease just because we have open borders. And I'm sure that this would be the same if we have open borders on a more global scale or even partially open borders with more migration. The role of language, the role of culture, the role of political institutions, they're still going to be important even if we have a million more foreign nationals within our, our, our own borders so it's very interesting to see that a lot of these questions are being asked and the answers are always black and white right right, right. Uh, whereas at the end of the day it's a, a lot more grayish and i'm certain that the positive effects of immigration far outweigh the negative effects but I think it's occasionally worth to have a conversation about the potential negative effects of migration in certain communities and then have local public policy responses to it. More education, uh, more involvement in local communities. So I don't want to deny certain problems around policy ideas. But the problem with authoritarian populists is that they offer incredibly simple solutions. To fairly complicated public policy problems. Um, so obviously, when they present it to the public, that we have the magic trick. It's fairly easy to buy into those ideas, even if they don't work in practice.
0: Right, and I think one, as you said, there's a lot of gray in in a lot of these answers. It's not just black and white, and I think that's very important to note, Uh, especially. And you did bring up the idea of nationhood or the role of a certain language or a certain ethnic group. Uh, My understanding, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong. You live there, so you know what more than I do. But my understanding is that a lot of people. There isn't this crisis between, for instance, you talk about open borders and things like that. There isn't this crisis between whether you view yourself as European or German, let's say. I, I've i heard and read that a lot of people just look at themselves as both in some cases. I'm a European and I'm also German. I'm European. I'm also a person that's British. There, There isn't this crisis that a lot of people uh, seem to be talking about whether or not open borders and people flowing between the countries is really destroying in a negative way some people's uh, identities or, or, or languages and cultures. Well,
1: I think in the U.S. it has been incredibly easy to say that I'm an American citizen with an Italian background, right? Right. My grandparents might have migrated from uh, Sicily uh, 70 years ago, but I grew up here. I feel home here. Um, I'm an American citizen, and I think that has been an incredible part of the American society throughout centuries. Um, And I'm a bit worried that it's changing in the United States for the worse, whereas it's changing in Europe for the better. Um, Europe used to be a lot more divided among uh, countries 50, 60 years ago than today. Um, So the fact that we have had open borders and the Schengen zone Uh, for the last 30 years really meant that a lot of people had the opportunity who wouldn't have tried otherwise to study in different countries, work in different countries, engage with different languages and cultures, um, and they still have an important national identity, but they're at least not hostile against um, certain other countries or certain other types of cultures um, that they haven't known before. And you mentioned that it's fairly easy to have um, different identities, um, and I couldn't agree more. Like having a European identity and a German identity, and then an identity of someone who lives in Berlin, um, I think I think the vast majority of people are like that. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are always um, certain uh, groups that try to emphasize one whole for the other, right. and I don't think that that is necessarily a problem. I think if you're an oppressed minority in a country because of your ethnicity, it's completely normal to emphasize that part of your identity over anything else because mm-hmm. of self-determination, because of you know respectable political goals. Uh, but overall, I would say that the vast majority has multiple identities based on the ge- geographical location and the cultural and language uh, background that they have. Um, and, and I think that's a rather positive thing.
0: So shifting gears a little bit, I, w- I want to get back to something you said earlier, actually right at the beginning, I think, of our conversation. I'd, I'd like to do the last part of our episode, our time together, talking about uh, political change and what classical liberals can do in the political arena. So you said that ultimately that historically, classical liberal-leaning parties or groups have never been the majority power. We grant that. But you said that they've been a deciding or determining factor often. So why don't you get a little bit more into that and explain how... how people can go about thinking of a classical liberal or a free marketeer sort of leaning person as or group, I should say, as a potentially determining factor in either a political outcome or decision? Because I think a lot of people sometimes go to a classical liberal convention or event and say, well, there's only 50 of us here and the Democrat (laughs) Party is so huge. What are we going to do? So so I'd like you to get a little bit more into that.
1: Sure. Well, I think in the EU, it has been a success story in the last couple of decades because most of the countries of the European Union have a proportional electoral system. So in practice it means that there are seven to eight different political parties in many of the countries' parliaments and they need to form a coalition government if they want to govern the country. And the classical liberal leaning political parties um, made pretty good deals in most of these countries by always managing to be uh, kind of the power that decided whether it's the social democrats or whether it's the Christian conservatives that can form a government. And more often than not, they lean towards the Christian conservatives and manage to form a government with them, which meant that the Christian conservatives often had to adopt Um, stances that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So These classical liberal forces really enabled the prospering of individual liberties when it came to societal issues. It was a conservative government in many European countries uh, that adopted gay marriage. Um, And that was partially because these classical liberal political parties were either in governing and coalitions with them, or they really managed to set the political agenda around these liberal societal issues. And I think we can do the same thing in the future, uh, but we have to realize that the political sphere is shifting. And a lot of our former allies on the Christian conservative side are either turning into authoritarian populists or it or turned into one. Um, I think a lot of the former members of the European People's um, Party, which is the main Christian democratic group in the European Parliament, um, are now battling with authoritarianism amongst themselves. Uh, Really, I would go back to my example um, of my own home country, uh, Viktor Orban and his government, who started out as liberals in the early 90s then turn into conservatives and now are really kind of the leading populist voice in Europe. Um, So these political parties and often the same leaders do shift on the political spectrum um, and we have to find allies who are really the closest to our beliefs. And our belief is really a small government that's not intrusive either on economic freedoms or social freedoms. Um, and I think in the future, we will have to find some unlikely allies that we consider as uh bit out of touch or a bit weird at the
0: moment. I think it was great that you brought the point about setting the political agenda. That is to say, I think a lot of people underestimate the power of raising awareness for certain issues and getting people's minds in a certain into a certain mindset so that they care about that when they go to a voting booth. That could put pressure on majority political powers or larger parties. I think some people think that The end game should always be to get a majority of the seats in a parliament, let's say, rather than set the agenda, as you said. So I think that's a very important point as well, how classical liberals can be very effective without either one seat or or any coalition as well there's always the the political mind of the general population that's important and those are ultimately the people voting
1: that's definitely true but we shouldn't forget that our political enemies can do the same right and i I think the united kingdom is a great example for the moment, where the conservative party had a a landslide majority just two months ago um because it had a really hardcore left-wing authoritarian Opposition party leader Jeremy Corbyn, mm-hmm. who was, um, you know, the main leader of the main opposition party, so the Conservatives managed to win uh, by a landslide. They have formed their government, but a lot of the public policy ideas that they're coming up with right now are incredibly left leaning, and that's because the <laughs> Labour opposition party really managed to set the agenda in the last five to ten years. Um, So the Conservatives are now forced to adopt a lot of the ideas uh, that Labour would have supported if they became the governing party. Uh, So we should not underestimate the power of agenda setting for sure. So
0: I guess that leads nicely to what my next question was going to be. And this is really just a straight up question about your personal opinion on the matter. So what's the higher order bid then for classical liberals and, and free marketeers and people that lean that way? Should you know, a majority power or a good seat in the political coalition be the ultimate goal? Should it be mostly about raising awareness and setting the political agenda? Is in a mix of both? Where, where do you stand on that?
1: I don't think we should be short-sighted. I don't think that we have to sacrifice any of our beliefs just to gain some political power and think that, okay, if you have political power, you will manage to pass the reforms that are are going to create a freer society. I don't think things are that easy, unfortunately. Um, What we can do, and what many of us are actually doing at the moment, is to fight the battle in the short term for the foundations of liberal democracies, right? I think in many of the European countries, it's really a battle now, whether we're gonna have democratic systems where our voices can be as easily heard as today. Um, so we we have to make some unlikely allies in that battle um, and any kind of mainstream political uh, party or any mainstream political movements that believe in the foundations of liberal democracies is a good ally in that quest. but. Once that battle is fought and won, hopefully, uh, then we shouldn't forget that we have often very different political ideals and very different public policy choices than many of the current mainstream movements and mainstream political parties. Um, so. I, I think it's, it's always easy to say on the one hand and on the other hand, but I really do think that there is a short-term battle that we need to fight when it comes to the support of rule of law and the support of uh, liberal democracies ac- across Europe and the globe for that matter. Um, but also, we shouldn't forget that uh, our political beliefs are really much more far-reaching than just the mainstream ideals of politics that, okay, we can have a big government with uh, 50% redistribution. Um, It kind of worked in the last 50 years because we're still living prosperous lives. I I think classical liberals need to be a lot more ambitious than that and make sure that really individual liberty remains at the heart of what we are doing on a daily basis. And a lot of the educational charities in the classical liberal sphere and a lot of the um, think tanks do play a massive role in that. Um, but we need to make sure that the next generation of classical liberals is also going to be there, right? right. I, think, I think we have all been to some of these Uh, conferences where the average age was rather closer to 50 than to 25. And that's not bad on the older generations. I think that reflects badly on the younger generations if we cannot uh, get our message um, through the young generation of politically active campaigners who tend to be more left-leaning in the United States than classical liberal leaning, then I think we have a massive problem in the long term. So we do have a lot of legwork to do, uh, but I think there are really some fantastic organizations out there that do this legwork. Uh, but we need to quadruple our efforts and in the, in the next couple of years for sure.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think that's an excellent point, and, and I couldn't agree more. I think you're exactly right that. Uh, classical liberals and people that lean that way need to be able to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. If all we do is focus on the long term and and what our ideal classical liberal utopia would be, then we're never going to get out of a seminar room. But on the other hand, if we're, if we're too short sighted, as you said, we risk watering down many ideas and not necessarily making alliances because that's a good thing, but allowing those alliances to sort of create the diet coke or watered down versions of our ideas. And, and then that's where we're not keeping the long term enough in mind. So I, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, we don't need to get into to specific examples because I want to get to other things and, all, and we're running out of time, but also people can think of them on their own where, you know, there's a reason why if a lot of you listening feel the frustration about being a classical liberal and not understanding why people think that means you're a hardcore conservative, then you can think about how certain ideas have fused historically in these movements to water down some ideas. So as you said, we, we need to be very strong with what classical liberals ideas ideals are and uh, how alliances don't mean you need to sacrifice things, but ultimately join efforts to to achieve a further goal. So I think that's an excellent point. Um, And so... As our time winds down here, I want to spend the last five to 10 minutes getting into some areas that you called, and you outlined this at the end of your article, opportunities for classical liberals. So you said, and I'll quote you back to you, uh, reaching out to new political movements and their voters is not only advantageous political calculations, but a necessity for the survival of liberal ideas. And you identify a few uh, categories of opportunity for classical liberals. And of course, I, I don't expect you to just read the article back to us. And I definitely don't think you, you want to spend an hour in each area. But uh, let's let's skim them quickly. So obviously, we've been talking a lot about how There are a lot of opportunities for classical liberals to align with whatever party will effectively want to take ideas and ones where we can have the most effect. So, one of the categories you identified was open markets in a global world.
1: So, I think at the moment, a lot of the conservative political parties really abandon the idea of trading with the rest of the world. Um, I think the US is the prime example for that at the moment, where the America First policy really determines the trade policy of the United States. And I think that's a massive mistake. Uh, Trade has made made us tremendously more rich than we could have been otherwise. And if we try to dismantle our global trading system, uh, this is not going to create um, poverty and destruction, only in the developing world, where a lot of the poor people really depend on uh, the jobs created by uh, the newly opened up markets. It's gonna make us in the developed world also a lot poorer by increasing consumer prices and by um, having fewer opportunities than we would have otherwise. So in this sense, uh, we lost the conservatives in the United States. The Republican Party is against free trade in 2020 which is a sentence that I don't think anyone would have believed 10 years ago. Right. Um, so we need to make sure that we are going to find voices on the other side or on the spectrum of political parties that are willing to embrace the global role of the United States or the global role of any country within the trading system. Um, and we have to acknowledge that this might not be the conservatives in the future. Who right. that might be in the U.S., I think it's still early days to say. Uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump share exactly the same ideas on trade. Right. Uh, so if we have two presidential candidates in the U.S. that are hostile against free trade, Uh, then I think we might need to forget about the U.S. for a bit uh, and concentrate on other countries that might be able to step in and support the world uh, free trade system. Um, But I think in Europe, it's often um, traditional liberal parties um, and social democratic parties and Christian democratic parties that are still supporting um, a global role for the EU to play when it comes to establishing um, new free, free trade agreements and making sure that the EU is not just trading amongst itself and its members,
0: but also has a role Um, across the globe to play. No, 100% I agree with that. And I also think that classical liberals also need to keep in mind that free trade is not defined as, you know, a rigged trade as well, right? So that's, some Republicans would still say that, yeah, we're for free trade as long as it benefits these sectors and industries. Well, that's a different conversation. So I think that's also important to keep in mind.
1: Incredibly so. I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily mind if some other governments decide to subsidize the production of certain products so I can buy it cheaper. So it's that a mistaken view of the global trading uh, system, that just because some countries are uselessly subsidizing production, uh, we have to do the same in our own countries. Right. Uh, so I couldn't agree more.
0: So, so moving on, another category you said, opportunities for classical liberals, open societies.
1: Immigration. This is topic number one in most European countries at the moment, and it's often topic number one for Donald Trump and his supporters in the U.S. as well. Um, Immigration has been a key part of building a sustainable EU. Um, I think the fact that 10 former communist uh, countries joined the European Union and have open borders with the rest of Europe at the moment tremendously sped up their economic development. Um, And this is true on a global perspective as well. Um, The fact that we have a very diverse, very well-educated workforce in Silicon Valley, in Scandinavia, in many of the tech hubs of the world, um, contributes to the well-being of everyone. Um, So, From an economic perspective, it has been a major success story that we have had relatively open borders. for the last couple of decades, but there's so much more to do on this front. I think it's a lot more difficult to migrate to the United States today than it was 20 years ago, Um, Mm -hmm. and that's true for many Western liberal democracies. I think Canada is rather a positive example on that front, Uh, but Sweden is the primary positive example, uh, because if you have a job confirmed with any Swedish company, the government will give you the necessary visa to work and live there. Um, and That seems like a no-brainer for classical liberal, that if you have a company and if you have an individual who want to be in contractual agreement with one another, they should be allowed to do so. Uh, Yet, I think this has been a massive uh, challenge in a lot of European countries nowadays to sell it as a positive and a lot of the christian democratic parties and a lot of the social democratic parties unfortunately as well move towards a restrictive stance on immigration and uh, more uh, you know more government involvement and more government control on that front Uh, Many of the European countries have been building fences on their borders, just like Donald Trump and the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think overall, this is a very negative um, environment that we started to develop in recent years. Um, And we have to find new allies as classical liberals uh, to reach out to and say, we will make the case for a more open-border system um, together, whether it's green parties, whether it's other kind of left-wing parties that emphasize the uh, social justice aspect a lot more than the economic aspect of open borders. Um, I think we can unite with other political forces and other political movements um, to emphasize the benefits of relatively open borders across the globe. And that conversation is really not being made at the moment as strongly as it could be.
0: And and those of you listening, we did a few episodes on on immigration and we we talked about them at length. So Alex Narasta was one of our guests and he talked about a lot of stats about open societies and immigration. And and Chris Freeman was also on as well, talking about people's right to immigrate and and went into that. So if you're listening to this one but haven't checked those ones out, I encourage you to do so. Moving on, Adam, another category you talked about where there's opportunities for classical liberals is environmentalism. This might strike some people as odd. I'd like to kick it off with a strong quote from from you. So I'll read you back to yourself. And I thought this was very good. You said, as green parties radicalize and conservatives and authoritarians often ignore the question altogether, the vacuum of reasonableness should be filled by liberals. And of course, in this case, you mean classical liberals. So that is very interesting. And I thought that was a great quote. So what did you mean there?
1: Well, sometimes we need to acknowledge the word that as it is, and not dream of a word as we would have designed ourselves. And the word as it is, um, Environmentalism is the number one policy question for most Western European countries uh, for people under the age of 35. So what they worry about is climate change. Right. And this is this is a given. No matter what your opinion on climate change is, whether you think it's incredibly harmful in the long term, whether you don't think that the risks are, Uh, that's horrible. It is the main worry of young people in Western liberal democracies. And the only people throughout the years, in the last probably five to 10 years, the only people who addressed this concern were left-wing political forces, and often very radical left-wing political forces that claim the only problem Um, that we have when it comes to climate change is capitalism, and capitalism inherently leads to the destruction of the environment and is gonna have horrible consequences on our society. So we need to overthrow capitalism and then we can battle climate change. This has been a conversation in many European countries for the five, 10 years, because classical liberals and conservatives simply did not take part in the conversation. Um, And I think that's a massive mistake. Um, The Mm -hmm. European Union acknowledged or adopted a proposal to become climate carbon neutral by 2050. So this is the political reality that the EU will be climate neutral by 2050, according to our leaders. There are many ways to achieve that. There are ways where we overthrow capitalism and run factories based on central planning, based on the Soviet system. And this is really, this is the effect that uh, a lot of the environmentalists, environmentalists are dreaming about, right? Or we can really propose free market solutions to battle the externalities of industrial production and make sure that through technological development, through innovation, we manage to reduce our carbon footprint and manage to lead healthier and better lives in the future than we do right now. And I think free marketeers do have a massive success story to tell. I think right. the the fact that carbon emissions have been constantly dropping in the developed nations through the last twenty years, we We already see signs of this success story but we need to tell it. We need to tell how technological development contributes to reduce CO2 emissions, how new innovations such as lab-grown meat can massively reduce uh, the negative externalities on our climate. And we need to really propose the free market solutions to battle climate change, independently of um, our personal views, how seriously you, you think about this problem. You might think that this is only our fifth or th- sixth most important problem. But if a lot of young people emphasize this as their public policy number one, that they are going to vote um, accordingly, then we will need to provide our own answers for it
0: hundred percent, yeah. And and free market environmentalism isn't an oxymoron. We had Glenn Fox on an episode and he went in very in-depth into that. So that's an excellent point, Adam. And I, and I hope people listen to that other episode I just plugged as well. Last uh, category of opportunity you identified for classical liberals, then I'll allow you to wrap up the episode after this one. You talked about being open to the future and specifically with digital policies. What's the classical liberal role here?
1: I think there are a lot of worries when it comes to digitalization, especially the role of AI, and uh, how data flows are going to happen between countries in the future. Um, I think this discussion is often connected to national security. Uh, So People are worried that authoritarian regimes are becoming too powerful and too impactful in the digital sphere, um, and that is going to have an impact on our national security. Um, So a lot of governments are proposing ideas to restrict these data flows between countries and establish kind of national versions of the internet where certain things are blocked in certain countries. And I think that's a truly dangerous tendency if we would like to give up our own freedoms so our own government can control what we use in the name of national security I think we already saw that when we were uh, combating terrorism, that it just leads to uh, more government control, but it doesn't get rid of the problem in itself. So I don't want to uh, minimize the risks of using certain products or certain uh, technological innovations developed by countries that are not necessarily friendly to liberal democratic Mm -hmm. ideas. Um, Yes, I'm looking at China at the moment, Um, but I think it still matters a lot that we should be having these discussions, educating ourselves on these risks and making our own individual choices accordingly and not just buy into the nationalist government propaganda that we need the big government to save us from ourselves. Otherwise, all of our data and, um, you know, the whole infrastructure of national security uh, is going to be compromised by foreign technological developments. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the liberal parties are often very silent or sometimes even on the wrong side of the debate, I, I'm based on my own opinion, at least. Um, so a lot of European countries are complaining about the fact that all the new tech companies are American, right? And America is not a hostile power by any definition. I mean, no matter what you think of Donald Trump, uh, (laughs) the US is definitely a great ally of European countries uh, in every regard. So the fact that we are complaining that our data is being handled by American companies and not European companies, for me, that's an incredibly worrying sign. And then uh, when a self-described liberal president such as the French president, Emmanuel Macron, is really pushing for uh, European Facebook or European Google and massive investment, state investment into tech companies, I think that's an incredibly worrying sign where liberals should really voice their concerns and make sure that the globalized nature of uh, the tech economy is not going to be compromised just because some politicians would like to have more government over, or more government power. And uh, more oversight on their
0: systems. That's an excellent point too, right? It's an, it's interesting and important for classical liberals to note the leap there. It's one thing to be, uh, you know, concerned about data sovereignty, how data is handled by corporations or government. It's another then to turn around and talk about state investment into tech companies. So here's where we run into issues. Right. So we can't let, as you were saying, we can't let these things just get bundled up into one kind of solution, as if to say, okay, now we need the state to invest things. So definitely, no, this is an a- area of opportunity for sure for classical liberals. So so our time has wound down completely here. In fact, you've been generous. I think we went a little over time. So uh, we always like to conclude the episode by letting our guests have the last words. I always ask the guests to bring everything full circle because we've talked about a lot. So I want you to put a finer point on our exploration of the question. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether populism is a threat to liberalism and what political realignment means?
1: I think the main takeaway is for classical liberals to be open-minded. We should be open-minded to new allies because the political realignment that has been going on means that a lot of our old allies are going to be lost. The old allies who emphasized limited role for the government when it comes to economic redistribution are now moving towards uh, more government control on societal issues uh, where we strongly disagree with them. Um, But this is an opportunity for us to identify some new allies, and some new allies who might agree on us on different issues than how to run the economy, namely what we think about immigration and open borders, uh, what we think about the best solutions to combat climate change, and how we want to uh, innovate and foster technological development in the future. Um, And I think we have some cautionary tales from European countries Uh, when classical liberals really haven't managed to find the right allies and a lot of the um, authoritarian populist parties and movements have taken over governance. Uh, Poland and Hungary are such cases uh, where really the foundations of uh, liberal democracies is being questioned. Um, So we do need to fight a short-term battle in order to make sure that we continue to live in Fairly free, fairly prosperous liberal democracies, but we also make we also need to make sure that we don't lose our long-term goals and strong beliefs um, of individual freedom and economic liberties, and we help and find new allies um, who can uh, lead leads to more prosperity and more individual liberty in the future.
0: Adam Bartha, thank you very much for joining me today on the Curious Ask. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.